Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we examine Ezekiel chapter 29. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am Yahweh. Because you have been a staff or reed to the house of Israel, when they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders, and when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you, and will cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Because you said the Nile is mine and I made it, therefore behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdol to Syene as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be uninhabited forty years. And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries, and her cities shall be a desolation desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, At the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations, and I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations." And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord Yahweh. In the twenty-seventh year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me declares the Lord Yahweh. On that day I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have another chapter that begins with basically a time stamp on it, and we've gone backwards in time a little bit. So chapter 26 had started in the 11th year, 
now we're back into the 10th year, so we have gone probably 588 BC here. The siege of Jerusalem is already well underway, but this prophecy then comes to Ezekiel to speak against the nation of Egypt. And the interesting thing about the timing of it is going to be when you get down to, which verse was that, verse 6 and 7? Because you have been a staff or reed to the house of Israel, when they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. The Israelites, well, Judaites, the people of Jerusalem, had allied themselves with Egypt against Babylon, seeking that salvation, basically. So the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, were coming against them, and Pharaoh and his army came up, and, well, there was... There was fear of a bigger war, perhaps, and the Chaldeans backed off. But that doesn't endure. And so at the point that you are now in 588 B.C., the Babylonians have returned. They have besieged Jerusalem. It's been going on for a good year already. And Egypt has been nowhere to be found. That alliance failed. It produced nothing in the end. And so this judgment... Uh, this prophecy against Egypt is falling upon that situation. So it's because of the pride of Egypt, as we saw with Tyre in the last few chapters, and also because they failed to aid God's people as they had pledged themselves to do. Interesting context here. So maybe start out with your children talking about the land of Egypt and what do you know and you can talk about that from a, a current perspective, I suppose, but especially looking at the scriptures, what do you know about Egypt? And so there you can go all the way back, right, to the Exodus account, to the time when Joseph took his family down to Egypt. They lived in Goshen, how the they stayed there for 400 years. It was during that time that the Egyptians eventually feared them and enslaved them. And then they cried out to God, and God sent Moses to deliver them, to, to bring them out from Pharaoh. You've got the ten plagues, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army. That's the primary account about Egypt and Scripture that we're familiar with. In the Old Testament, at least, as you get to the New Testament, you have Jesus and his family. So Joseph actually is the head of the house, taking his wife and child, and they flee down to Egypt to avoid the wrath of Herod. Out of Egypt I will bring my son is a reference to actually both of those accounts. But then there are these references kind of scattered throughout the books of the prophets about Egypt and their relationship to the nations of God's people and, and the other surrounding nations at these various times. And this is one of those um, that we, we certainly see and have at least bits and pieces about enough that we can confidently share what happened. So here's the prophecy against them. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we get pride as the first region, reason, right? The great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams and says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. The Egyptian pharaohs often treated like they were gods, taking that prideful boast upon himself, believing that he has made this, this mighty river, when in fact it was the Lord who made that river, 
and gave it to his creation as a gift to water it, to care for it. And instead we have that turned over where the the creature is trying to be God and claim creation for himself. Interesting that the Pharaoh gets called a great dragon. That reference, Job 41, the Leviathan, when you read that description, sounds a lot like what we would think of as a dragon today. The devil uh, is called a dragon in Scripture, especially the book of Revelation, to consider that. So an interesting title, right, or comparison here. And then the, the dragon actually is associated with water. That's probably distinctive from the myths that we tend to have in our own society today about dragons, and you think of them in fantasy and things like that. They don't usually come from water. They usually come from mountains and caves and hordes of gold, those sorts of things. But if, you know, the Leviathan in Job 41 is any indication, if that's actually a dragon, that seems to be a water-based creature as well. Verse 4 keeps that water reference going. The idea of hooks in your jaws is like fishing. But <laughs> there's there's a couple other parts to that. So again, um, as we've just referenced the Leviathan and the devil, you couldn't fish hook a Leviathan, right? <laughs> That's actually in Job 41. You weren't going to catch that thing. You weren't going to master it, although the Lord could master it and certainly has. Interestingly enough, though, the flip to that is that the devil, while it might not be fish hooks, is bound and put in chains by Christ. So as we, we think of this, just an interesting, again, parallel here to, to consider. Now, the Assyrians were known for actually putting fish hooks in the mouths of their captives that they would then lead away into captivity, a fairly grotesque practice that they had, uh, and humiliating, right? Reminding these new captives whose they are. Jesus will flip that image on its head and he turns it into, you know, I will make you fishers of men. The fish hook idea gone there and they're, they're using the gospel to, to catch men instead of force. Anyway, the great dragon that is Pharaoh hooks in his jaws, so the Lord is going to capture him, and he's going to make his make all the fish of the streams stick to his scales. That is a reference to all of those that depend on Pharaoh. That could be, you know, some of the other small nations around them, or it could simply be his own citizens. Maybe it's both, but anyone who relies upon Pharaoh also is ensnared in this trap. They're drawn up out of the water, cast into the wilderness, where they become beasts, uh, food for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens. So, destroyed. And by this, all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am Yahweh. We continue to see that phrase throughout the book, and it, it mirrors Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, where God had used the plagues for that very same purpose, to teach the Egyptians that he is Yahweh. Now he's going to use this judgment to teach them that he is Yahweh. And again, part of the reasoning here, um, not just the pride, but also because they had essentially abandoned Jerusalem. They pledged to, to care for them, they allied with them, and then when 
when Israel, when Judah, tried to rely upon them, they weren't there. The, the imagery that's given is of a staff leaned upon. Uh, perhaps in our own picture today, we might use a cane instead. And so imagine if you had to use a cane to walk with because you just didn't have the balance anymore and you needed that support, but your cane was made out of something brittle. In this case, a, a reed, like a plant, And so as soon as you went to put the pressure on it, it snapped, it gave way, and it didn't hold you up. You collapsed. So when when Judah went to lean on Egypt, they broke. You can read about that in uh, Jeremiah chapter 37. Um, I think it's verses 5, 6, and 7 that you would catch that. So Babylon came. Egypt came. Babylon left. Egypt left, and when Egypt left, Babylon just came back. So pride is brought back into the picture in verse 9. The Lord is going to make them a devastation, a desolation, utter waste. From Migdal to Syene, that's basically north to south, as far as Cush, which is the the next location down to the south in, in terms of nations. It's going to be uninhabited for 40 years. That's significant devastation. The question becomes, is that a symbolic number? Is 40 is this this well-known number throughout Scripture or not? There's nothing here that says we need to take it symbolically. The Lord is punishing that place, uh, and severely so. the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from where they are scattered, and I will restore them. I will restore their fortunes, is what we see the Lord saying about them here. He's going to turn them into a lowly kingdom. So they will get to be a kingdom of their own again. But they won't have the wealth, they won't have the power uh, that they have wielded before. So, interesting and historically accurate, right, that the Egyptians have never recovered that spot of prominence on the global stage that they once had. And the reason, it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel. God's people should not be relying on foreign nations. What should they be relying on? Or who should they be relying on? It's a question to ask your kids. The answer to that one is God himself, that we should rely upon Jesus and not upon men. Trust not in princes, We rely on Christ. God is our provider. Christ is our Savior. Your next paragraph there, 571 B.C., is your date. So 27th year, we're a good 16 years now after Jerusalem has already fallen. And the Lord speaks to Ezekiel again. So we've actually had quite a bit of time pass in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar had taken his army and defeated Tyre, just as we read about in yesterday's chapter. And now we learn that his army got nothing. Right, So they, they devastated this perhaps wealthiest place in the world, and they got nothing for it. Why? We actually see that in the prophecy against Tyre in chapter 28, verse 17, that the Lord would make all of the kings of the earth... Well, he phrased it this way, I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. 
So the kings of the various places around sought the wealth of Tyre as they were being destroyed. And so much so that the Babylonians who actually did the destruction got gypped. They got nothing. And instead, what we see then is that the Lord offers up to Nebuchadnezzar for the sake of the payment of his army all of the wealth of Egypt. Because, verse 20, they worked for me. That is a great reminder that the Lord is in control of all things and that even though we see wicked, evil governments in this world, their authority still comes from God and God does still work through them for various purposes that we may not understand. He brings about his judgment upon other locations in this world, upon other evil governments in this world, according to his own timing. And then he judges them too, right? As he would do to Babylon, what, uh, another 35 years later? I think that's about right. 34, something like that. It brings you to the last verse, which is going to get into the end of the book again and, and point us towards the restoration idea that's coming. So Yahweh is in control, and as he is in control, he's going to rise up a horn for Israel. Horns in scripture, it depends on the kind of horn. Like if it's a horn on a beast, then you're talking about a, you're talking about a power or a king. And so if you want to read this horn in that regard, you know, he's going to raise up a ruler for the house of Israel. If you want to read it as like the, the shofar, the, the trumpet blast kind of a horn, then this is a reference to a war or a celebration. And I think you can go in the right direction with either of those references as they can both point you to what is about to come, which is, again, the twofold restoration idea for God's people, that is Cyrus of Persia, who will destroy um, the Babylonians and set the Jews, Judaites free, and then Jesus, who will eventually come another 500 so years later and give that, that great restoration to God's people uh, throughout all time, forgiving our sins and giving us life. So, both of those things can be in mind here. The actual Hebrew word for a horn is not a shofar, nor is it the ram's horn. It is uh, The word is, I think you'd pronounce it, karen, um, and is that more of a referent to an actual animal horn power kind of idea that we would see in the Old Testament or in the book of Revelation, too, as you think of the New Testament. It gets used frequently in that regard. So the Lord is going to give this prophecy of restoration to his people as he opens the lips of Ezekiel among them again, that they will know that he is Yahweh. And they will put their trust in him, for he alone is their Savior.